Welcome to the Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast. I'm Nick Fulweiler. I'm joined with Peter Bell as usual. How are you doing, Peter? I'm doing pretty good. I have at, at the time of this podcast, I have a week until school. So just getting ready. How are you doing? Dang, good. Good. Yeah. Um, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. And we are going to be talking about Jesus's two natures. Uh, yeah. That does not mean he's bipolar. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't mean uh, he's a Gemini and have two different personalities or anything weird. Uh, No, it just means uh, we'll get into it. But the thing is, is this episode is going to be recapping a lot of what we've just said about Jesus in the past. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and it's going to set the foundation for a lot of the stuff that we talk about in the future, too. Okay, good. Um, so to jump right in, uh, this first question is going to articulate what this episode really means. So yeah. people really are kind of confused. Two natures, what does that mean? So mm-hmm. what it means is he's fully God and he's fully man. So Peter, why does Jesus have to be 100% God and also 100% man? Yeah, so let me... Um... Let me repeat what the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 8 and section 3, it's, it's a super short little paragraph, says, and this, this gives us why he has to be both. And it says, The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit, above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father, that all fullness should dwell to the end that, being holy, blameless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished <coughs> to execute the office of a mediator and surety, which office he took not unto himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, who put all power and judgment into his hand and gave his commandment to execute the same. So what's saying is, he had to have both in order to satisfy the human demand, the human obedience requirements of mankind, and also the ability to perform the commandments perfectly by being fully God. And so he mm-hmm. had to take on both natures in order to satisfy both demands. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it can be... A little hard to wrap your head around, so don't feel bad um, if if it's still kind of confusing. We're going to unpack this more. Yeah, we're going to unpack it a lot. Yeah, so this is good. Um, So that laid the the groundwork right there. Um, So Jesus was fully 100% God. Well, I wouldn't shouldn't say just was. He is fully Mm -hmm. percent God, which he is the second person in the Trinity. We talked about that. If you want to go back and look at the Trinity episode, it will unpack that better. And then uh, he's also fully 100% man. So, um, yes, that adds to 200% for you math wizards out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, he is 100, 
every essence of God and every essence of man in the flesh, in bone. Uh, he was born of the Virgin Mary, and he was re resurrected in the flesh, not just the spirit. Yep. When Mary Magdalene and Virgin Mary saw his resurrected body, he was still, he was in the flesh, and that's why they mm -hmm. couldn't in the tomb anymore. Um, so is his fleshly, fleshly, yeah, that didn't sound right at first. Okay. <laughs> Flesh glorified body different than what it was when he walked on the earth 2000 years ago. Yeah, that's a, that's a super good question. And the, uh, the best way we can describe it is both a yes and a no. So yes, mm -hmm. in the sense that he has his glorified body as we will have our glorified bodies. And Paul mm -hmm. unpacks this towards the end of 1 Corinthians 15 talking about our resurrected bodies and so i think there's there's confusion on uh, are we going to be totally different human beings look totally different or are we just going to be like these weird ghostly souls kind of hovering around in heaven without any physical bodies and we can see from the resurrection account with christ in john 20 um though he veiled his presence originally like they didn't they just saw a farmer or they saw um, a gardener, actually. Once he revealed himself, he was recognizable to his disciples. He was recognizable to Mary Magdalene um, and Mary, his mother. And he was recognizable to Thomas, um, the doubting Thomas, who, who said, unless I see and touch, I will not believe. And so he's glorified in the sense that, that is his resurrected body, but he's also 100% recognizable. And so it's not this weird celestial angel heavenly body that we just can't recognize it's it is totally and completely recognizable um so in terms of like will it look different i mean i think the little scriptural evidence we have where it won't look different it'll be glorified in the sense that it will have no more sin defilement in it so we will see him as he is and as he was like yep, he, i think so in flesh and bone that's so cool to think about yeah glory yeah just like i said glorified in the sense that we will not struggle with sin our body will not be tempted towards sin but i think our body will look the same as it does now but glorified in the sense that our our affections our desires everything has been perfectly made conformable to the image of christ and the law of god yeah, well, I mean, we won't be looking tainted. I mean, we will look more perfect. I mean, more obviously more perfect. Yeah, and we'll see people not through the lens of sin. We'll see people through the lens of holiness. And so that'll kind of change the way we see them. Not see them, like, it won't change what they look like. It'll change how we see them. Cool. Yeah. Um, was Jesus fully man before he was born on earth or was he in full spiritual form? Cause I know in the beginning mm -hmm. of creation, he was there. So that's, yeah. we talked about that in previous episodes. So was he, even though before he was born on earth, was he a physical being or did he not start his physical nature until he was born of, uh, through his mother, uh, Mary? Yeah. And this one's hard because, Again, we don't have any specific scriptural evidence for or against this. The only thing that we have is he's always been the incarnate or pre-incarnate son of God. And so pre-incarnate just means taking on 
the form of flesh um, in the New Testament that we see within the Gospels. Um, but we also see appearances of Christ or appearances of the second person of the Trinity in the Old Testament, whether it be by the burning bush uh, or in the Genesis 3 account with um, Yahweh or the set that whatever the second person, what he would have been referred to in Genesis walking around. We know that God, the Father, has no physical form. And the only one with physical form is the second person of the Trinity. And so we see some glimpses of him. We see a glimpse of him in Zechariah and some of the prophecy. We see a glimpse of him in Isaiah 6 that's given to us in John 12, the interpretation of John 12. We see a glimpse of him potentially in Melchizedek or in some of the interactions with Abraham um, and the covenant-making process in Genesis 15. And so in a sense, he was not in flesh pre his incarnation, but he was always the incarnate or pre-incarnate son of God. And so that was always true of him, but in temporary time was not true until he took on flesh. So it's that one's that one's hard because he did not take on his physical body that he took on at his birth at his incarnation, but he's always been the second person, the incarnate, the visible second person of the Trinity. So it's mm -hmm. it's both it's a both and for this one as well. So this one's this one's a little bit harder to understand and kind of grapple the mind around, but we have to understand what he is in his nature compared to the other two of the Trinity. And he is the in flesh one. He is the, he is the physical one. Is, do you think he's the physical one? Because the plan the whole time was that he would inherit uh, God's creation. He would inherit creation and mankind as in his inheritance. So he, to make that bridge between God, the father and creation he kind of was that. I mean, he's fully God, but he also mm -hmm. is of the flesh that he's going to inherit as well. Yeah, I think it's always been the plan. And again, if people want to go back to the Trinity episode, talking about the covenant of redemption, um, the agreement between all three parties of the Trinity to, for the Father to plan, for the Son to execute, and for the Spirit to apply redemption for their people, for his people. Um, I think this was always the plan. And there's some people who said, no, it was not always the plan. And it was only in reaction to sin that Christ had to become incarnate. But kind of consistent Reformed theologians say, nope, because Christ is the physical person of the Trinity, he was always to be incarnate. He was always to come into the flesh. That's always been the plan. Versus saying it's a reaction to sin. It's preordained that's what uh, Ephesians 1.4 says, before the foundations of the world, Christ came to save sinners. This was planned. Yeah. And, and with, to go into that deeper, we could go to the fall episode that we have that kind yeah. of understands the more the what comes first, the chicken or the egg kind of conundrum. Yeah. You know, like God, obviously the fall came to kick this off essentially but before that he must have known it was going to happen too yep, it was planned before fall yeah yeah so wasn't reactionary 
so yeah, please watch these or listen to these episodes. I keep saying watch. Keep, if you want to watch it, you're just not going to look at much. Right. Just <laughs> uh, the keep logo. Listening, keep listening to these episodes as much as you can because they do feed into each other. Yeah, absolutely. So since Jesus is fully 100% man, we know he fully 100% understands our temptations and our pain as humans. Uh, that's pretty clear in scripture. Yeah. Um, but is he, he, he is the only one that could overcome them because he is 100% fully God. Right? Yeah, that's, that's, um, oh, this is going to be in Hebrews, um, beginning portion of Hebrews. And then I think some parts of Hebrews seven and eight talking about understands our, infirmi our, our infirmities, which is just a kind of a theological way of saying that we have temptations and sin that we deal with. And so we have these inclinations because of our sinful nature. We have a predisposition to sin um, because we love sinning. That's, that's why we sin. It's because we love it. It's, it is our first love um, yeah. until Christ comes and, and purchases us because of the Father. Um, but also because Christ is fully God, he has... For no other better term, he has the ab ability, because he's perfectly righteous, because he's not born in sin, he's born in righteousness, he has the ability to overcome temptations. Does not mean temptations don't come towards him, he's just able to avoid and to overcome temptations. He's the same temptations we do because he lived in the same earth that we do. He saw the same people. He experienced the same things. Uh, and it's not just power. It's his righteousness that gives him the ability to overcome temptation. Mm. As, as far as his uh, man aspect uh, yeah. and still being divine, mm -hmm. do you think that's part of the reason or is there any correlation to why he was born to, to Mary, who had to be a virgin? Um, yeah, she, he had to be born of a virgin because she had to be a virgin regardless of his conception of his coming into this world because of original sin, because of the sinful nature, because of the sinful disposition. And um, what was it? Psalm 51 with David saying, um, I was born of sin. I was born of corruption. And Job talks about it in the early parts um, of the book of Job as well. Naked I came into this world and naked I go back. So he's, he had to have been born of the virgin because if he was born of human seed, he inherits human corruption. Because yes. he was not born of human seed because the spirit of God was the one who impregnated Mary. He's born of heavenly seed. Wow. Yeah, that weirdly makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I In hope a so. really weird way. Uh, yeah. So that, that helps us understand <clears throat> why he was born outside of sin and in righteousness and is able to, in righteousness, fulfill the demands of the law and overcome temptation. Do, do you think that has uh, any... I don't know if I'm completely apples and oranges here, but any question <laughs> when in the Bible it says he, 
there is the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. Yeah, I think it, it bears, it has some relationship to that as well, because the seed of the serpent is the conception, the, the birth of sin, the uh, bondage, the communion with sin, and then the seed of righteousness is the seed of the woman is the one who's to come who will, will crush that as well. So I think there's some relationship. Um, and I think the main relationship is born of the seed of man is corruption, born of the seed of righteousness, of, of heaven, of, of the Father. That is, that is what leads to um, holiness. Right. Yeah, I mean, it can't be too far off because like most things, it's pointing to Jesus anyway. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that one's, cool. yeah there's, two, there's two classes, those who are in Christ and those who are not. Mm-hmm. Um, if he was already fully God, and he always has been, yeah. why did he decide to be baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, yeah. at the age of around 30, right before his ministry began? Yeah. Yeah, this one's, this one's rough because it's, with our kind of current understanding, what most of evangelicalism sees as baptism is a profession of your faith, like an, the outward profession of an inward um, confession or an inward belief, where when you look at uh, Mark, and we just went through this at church a couple weeks ago, what Mark, um, through the preaching of Peter, when he's, when he's writing it down, what they're trying to do is there's two accounts. There's two kind of parallelisms. The first one is when <coughs> Jews and non-Jews come from Judea, come from the south, come to get baptized in the wilderness, and they're confessing their sins. So there's that account, and that's a couple of verses before. It's like Mark 1, 7 or 8. Uh, and then later on, Mark 1, 9 through 13, Jesus comes to get baptized. And there's a phrase missing. From that previous one because he's not confessing his sins he has no sins what he what you're seeing is an identification in baptism he's saying i'm coming to be baptized in this like in this race i'm coming to be identified with these people i'm coming to be identified with those who come to confess their sins i am taking on their burdens i am taking on flesh i am taking on their temptations yet without confessing sin because i don't have sin I'm taking on those who do have sin. So you can see within just a couple of verses, very explicitly what Mark's doing, where he's identi- identifying this baptism is like this baptism. He's identifying with those who confess, but he's not confessing because he's perfect. Right. I mean, he, so technically he didn't need to be baptized, but was he baptizing on our behalf and showing us what to do as a leader? Um, I, I think that's the general kind of idea. People saying it's it's um, like leadership and it's it's moral and it's follow his example. And I, I think it's not that. And I think it's more towards he is identifying with sinners. He's saying, I came to identify to be under the same law as you guys were. And I'm going to do this perfectly. Because, again, the... It's hard to describe the Greek construction of those two, and they're like five verses away from each other, but they're parallel to each other. So they use the same exact language. The only thing we see in the baptism of Christ is he doesn't say, and they confess their sins. For the those from Judea, they're confessing their sins. Christ is baptized. He's not confessing his sins because he is the one who's taking on their sins. 
in his baptism. Right. And again, we have to look at what does the Old Testament say about this stuff. And Old Testament almost exclusively connects baptism to identification, to you are part of this community, you are taking part of this family, you are now engrafted into this family. And that's, I think, what Mark is extending as well. Christ is identifying with this people. Yeah, that answers that um, he never he never sinned before he was baptized. Nope. And I know there is some theories out there, um, or even from skeptics, um, that would be that he was a normal man before he was baptized, and yeah. baptism created him, introduced the Father to him, and yeah, then which he, is the uh, Matthew account, Matthew three. Right, yeah, so like the spear or the dove kind of coming down, descending upon him. Right, so yeah, there's a lot of strong theories out there that he was a, just a normal guy like all of us until he got baptized, and then he be turn, turned into the Messiah and became fully God then. But if we rewind this whole conversation to the beginning, that doesn't make sense. He was always God. He was begotten even beginning, yeah. time, you know? Yeah, and that's... And that's kind of the adoption theory from a lot of um, mm. a little bit more liberal Christianity or those who are trying to say that Jesus was not fully God because he was baptized the same way we're baptized. But again, with a full knowledge of scripture, that passage is very specifically trying to tell something about creation. That same spirit that hovered over the waters in Genesis 1-2 and that same spirit, that dove who came to Noah's Ark in Genesis 8, it's that same kind of imagery that Matthew's trying to show us as well, where this is that creator, that spirit, that anointing is on this person, not because it's now on this person, it's because it's always been on this person. So the identification of full God is on this person, not became, like began on this person at this time. It's always been on this person. So he is very, very specifically speaking of this is that one who is created through in Genesis 1-2, and this is that one who's recreating in Genesis 8. Yeah, we support the knowing that the Trinity has always been the Trinity versus mm -hmm. the Trinity's second person started when he was baptized. <laughs> yep, if it started when he was baptized, it means he spent 30 years imperfect. Right. And eternity before that, not even being yep. part of eternity. So that doesn't make sense. Okay, cool. Um, so what was his childhood like? We have, I think we have two pictures of his childhood. We have his, <coughs> his birth, um, maybe two years of his birth, where they're fleeing um, persecution. They're fleeing the, um, the emperor killing the firstborn. And again, it's a picture of Exodus. And Matthew makes that explicit in Matthew, I think, 2.13 or 2.15. We're out of Egypt, but I call my son. And there's a lot of skepticism around that. Like, well, he's not coming out of Egypt. And it's Matthew saying, no, that Israel who came out of Egypt, from Egypt to the promised land, I'm now telling you this Christ is that, is that Israel, that true son who's going to obey my commands, obey my laws, unlike this uh, disobedient Israel did before. Um, and then also, too, there's the account when he was 12 years old in the temple where he's impressing 
all of these uh, rabbis and lawyers, and it's it's showing us, I think, in two ways. One, that he grew up like we did. He grew up having to learn. He grew up having to be under other people to, because he's fully man, he had to grow in knowledge. He had to grow in understanding. He had to grow under parents. He had to obey his parents. And it's also a, because he's saying when his parents came back and realized, like, uh-oh, we left our son in the temple and they come back, Jesus is saying, well, this is my father's house. This is my true father's house. And he's identifying with, this is me. This is, I am, I am that temple. I am, I am the one who's come to fulfill what the temple pictures. And so that's, those are the only two like real pictures we have of his childhood. And I think the more we get into it, the more we get into what are called the Gnostic gospels and the Gnostic gospels kind of push his childhood and make it more mystic or like fanciful or um, less human than Jesus actually was. He was fully human. So he went through the same stuff we did growing up. Weirdly enough, on a side note, uh, a lot of his family were either didn't believe or they were surprised to know that he's calling himself the Messiah, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. James says it explicitly. And um, yeah, it's hard for his friends and family to understand. Right. So critics love that because they're like, oh man, the people he grew up with didn't even believe, you know? And, and so, but I, you know, I think it's just kind of more comical too. They're like, think about how when you're around your family, they, they look at you in a certain way all the time, no matter how old you get. Right. Yeah. I think there's some, like, there's some weird expectation from skeptics for everyone to perfectly understand who Christ was at his birth and throughout his childhood and into his, his ministry, but they're not taking into account, like we are human beings, fallible, error prone human beings. We're not going to believe a lot of the stuff that we see. So there's like, we can't expect our interactions to fall in line with exactly what is the truth that we see. And I mean, how much more with the skeptics today? Oh yeah. I think Christ is Christ when we've already been having this conversation for over 2000 years. Yeah. Still don't believe, but yet they criticize somebody within a couple of years, not totally jumping on board immediately. So, yeah. And that's, and that's hard. Cause it's, I mean, John says it explicitly in John one 12 saying he came to his own and it's a Greek idiom for like, he went to his family. He was known by his family and they knew him not. So even his own family, didn't trust and believe and that's that's not inconsistent of the gospels that's just being real with human sin that we are not going to see the creator as who he is right um so speaking on that note before his ministry when he was in his early 30s um he was a child he was a also a carpenter his his step his earthly father joseph was a carpenter by yeah. trade um did he, it sounds like we've already answered this, but I'll ask it anyway. Yeah. He fully well know that he was the Messiah and what his destiny was the whole time, even as a child. Yeah, this is, again, you're, you're asking million dollar questions. These are, these are good questions. And I, th I think, again, we have to understand he had both a human and a divine nature. 
And we have to see the interplay between those where he always had a human and a divine nature. And the nature of humanity is that gross. Like our understanding grows are, if you want to call it like your self-consciousness, like your, like your own perception, your own idea of who you are, that grows as you grow up, as you get older. And I think we have to see that same thing in Christ. That mm. though he had full divine nature, he also had a fully human nature. And that grew in his consciousness. And I do think he did come to the realization, like, I am fully God. I am absolutely fully God, fully man. Do I know if he had that perception when he was five years old? I have no idea. Like, the scripture just doesn't tell us. Mm -hmm. uh, but we do know is he did fully comprehend and fully live through his divine consciousness, his divine nature during his ministry. And if that came from, like, that's like, again, we have to hold, not intention, but we have to understand he went through the same understanding, the same um, education, the same um, growth in your understanding of yourself as we do because of that human nature. Yeah. Doesn't mean he's any, like, his self-perception, his own, like, idea of who he is does not negate the fact that he's still fully divine. It just means that human nature had to come to an understanding, had to come through knowledge, had to come through experience to that realization. But that does not negate his fully divine nature. Well, um, yeah, it sums up the gospel that he had to come to our level to, yeah. save, to save us. So he had yep. to come to us to save us from himself, for himself, by himself. Yep, absolutely. Cool. Uh, I'm sorry, I stole your uh, question, stole your end of this this thing. So <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, so he never, he not only never sinned, but his thoughts and intentions were always 100% pure, even yeah. by uh, even by feeling human temptation and pain. Yep. Up even because so I think that kind of answers the previous question that. Even probably from a very early age, because we can make the case even small children sin. Um, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. So he he just always had a perfect, pure, intentional heart, and I'm sure that I'm sure that made him realize very quickly. And yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um. Yeah, his instincts. Uh, I guess, in put in those words, his instincts were slightly different than ours, maybe. Yeah, we have to see, because he, in Hebrews, is explicitly stating as having been born under the law to live under the law, his divine nature was capable of fulfilling the demands of the law, and his human nature, being tempted as it was, not intermingled with the divine nature in any way, but was... And like in a sense helped because of his divine ability to live under the law. Mm -hmm. So you have to like, it's this, there's this term in theology called the hypostatic union. And that's just talking about the two natures of Christ. And so kind of answering this question and giving um, a more like, like a historical understanding of this. So let me read this real quick. Um, this is from the Athanasian creed. This is from, sometime in the 300s 400s and this is in response to 
um, Arius who said that Jesus did not have a divine nature, that he was just purely man. And so he said of Jesus, although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by his divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to himself. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, so he's not blending divinity and humanity together, but by unifying of his person. For just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, so to the Christ is both God and human. So we don't want to say he's blending and he's like one thing is kind of seeping into the other, but he had two divine nature or he had one divine nature in the human flesh. And so that's what enabled him to persevere through temptation. Yeah. And my interpretation too, and I uh, hope I'm somewhat correct on it is for a previous episode, I was mentioning how just as we are 100% flesh, you and me are like, we're one individual, 100% flesh, but yeah. we're 100% needed to be born of our father, but we also had a 100% needed dependence to be born of our mother. So Jesus had that 100% paternal side from God, and he had the 100% flesh part from the Virgin Mary. So he's just as much human as we are, but he's 100% more God than we are. Yeah, in a sense, and I think sometimes it'd be careful, like comparing his divinity to our, um, our not having divinity. And so him okay. being fully God, fully man with a divine nature. We don't have a divine nature. No, We're just a human nature. And right. the divine nature took on human nature. It was not divine nature added or human nature added divine nature. It was, as Philippians 2 tells us, divine nature took on the humbleness of flesh. Didn't, didn't take away anything, just took on flesh, which because of the nature of his crucifixion and his resurrection, humbled him, humbled the divinity. Right. It's not what we think of humbling. Humbling is like he took on servanthood. He took on sin. He took on rebellion. He took on transgression. He took on disobedience under the law to be born under the law. Mm. And that's the humbling of divine nature. Yeah. It's the only way it could be done. Yep. Um, this is something that I found interesting and had a hard time trying to figure out is yeah. why Jesus's favorite term to call himself was son of man yeah and, and not son of god because for obvious reasons why mm -hmm. that's weird i think it almost seems like <laughs> the opposite yeah it should be the opposite um so what yeah yeah so this is this is a not a big debate but there's Two terms, son of man, most usually comes from Daniel. Um, a lot of the terms that are used of the Messiah to come are son of man. And that becomes, it's, that's his lineage. He is born of a, of a divine, not divine, of a royal lineage. He was born of the seed of David, and David's a man. So he's son of man in the sense that his lineage through Mary goes back to David, goes back to the King David. Uh, son of God is used in a bunch of different ways in scripture. And sometimes son of God is used in a negative light. And sons of God is used in Genesis 6. 
right before like all the intentions and actions and thoughts of man were evil continually, which leads to the flood with Noah. And the people are self-identified as sons of God. And the Hebrews, B'nai Elohim. So just, they like, they self-identify as this stuff. And it tended to be, outside of Israel, it tended to be something, whereas people who believed in like pagan deities, like multiple, like they're polytheists, they believed in multiple gods, kings and those who were under that system would call themselves, I am a son of a god. And we see that in Herod. We see that in those um, emperors pre-Christ who would call themselves literally son of God. Nero called himself a son of God. And it was more so like, I am taking on this divinity, which is why I think Jesus uses son of man more often. Yeah, it makes sense now uh, there to avoid confusion. Um, to also point that he is the fulfillment of a prophecy that he would come from the line of David, like you said. Yep. Yeah, because there's that and probably the one or this because he doesn't say the times when he says, I am son of God, not much happens. Whenever he uses the New Testament construction, I am, is the Greek ego eimi, which if you look in Exodus, when Moses asks Yahweh, who are you? So I can tell the people who you are. He says, I am the I am. And in the Greek translation of that, it's ego eimi. And mm-hmm. within the New Testament, when the Pharisees are asking them, how are you no more than 50 years old? But you say that Abraham, I was before Abraham. Abraham saw my day. I was before Abraham. He says, I am. And that's when they fall backwards. Oh, and cool. That's, that's like, that's, we have like, that's our perception of some of these terms has to be conditioned by scripture. And when we see some of these things where he talks about his Messiah, which is the Hebrew term for anointed one or Christ, which is kind of the, the Greek equivalent of that. But he also uses ego and me sometimes not in that sense, but sometimes context shows us he's using ego and me to say literally like, I am of the same divine, like, conception. I'm the same divine essence as Yahweh. That is me. Hmm. That's so cool. Nice. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, it could go back to that Jesus is the second Adam because yeah. he was able to overcome sin and temptation in the flesh as Adam, well, that in Adam, not only couldn't do it uh even in a fallen world but um i'm sorry adam did it in a perfect world he fell and and jesus uh resisted temptation and sin in a fallen world yep so absolutely i had to be born of man born in the flesh identified with man to save us and yeah, that just proves again, only he could do it because he was God. So um, he could do it in a fallen world where yep. right after he's baptized, he went in the desert for 40 days, mm-hmm. resisted temptation. He uh, was tempted in the desert and rose victorious. Yeah. Adam was tempted in paradise and fell. Yep. That's what I was trying to explain, and I fumbled right over myself. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I got each other. I don't know. Yeah. Everyone knows what I was trying to say. 
um, was the Messiah thought to be a fully God man, or did they think that he would come as fully God and not in the flesh or fully man, not of God and more of a political warrior? Yeah. So there's a bunch of different theories. A lot of it's what did the kind of Jewish context, what did they understand? What did the Pharisees understand? Um, I think there were some who maybe didn't expect the fullness of who Jesus Christ actually was, but saw bits and pieces of it. I think the main perception was, um, I don't know if it would have been fully God, fully man, but it definitely would have been some sort of victorious military leader on this earth. And it was more so to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth at his first appearance. Mm -hmm. um, not as his second appearance and whether that was fully god fully man i don't think that was fully worked out as far as we can tell i think there's more reason to believe it was more just fully man less so fully god and he was bringing um yahweh's kingdom to earth because it tends to be and again you can't make super generalizations but it tends to be um jewish theology only allows for literally one god no trinity and so they don't see this um fleshly person as being fully god because they don't have the the theological ability or theological kind of categories to allow that to happen um so it tends to be if it's a military leader it's just it's man and the man is is godly he's anointed but he's not god godly but not god right like that tended to be the most like widespread understanding of who he is. Cause that's why like he's crucified. That's why he's misunderstood by even his disciples. Are you going to bring the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to bring peace and rest to Israel? Cause the Roman empire was demolishing them. They were taxing them more than we can ever imagine being taxed. Uh, they had persecution from soldiers Rome owned all of Jerusalem. They owned, I mean, the Jews from 340 BC up until that point, up until the destruction of the, of the temple in 70 AD. So there was a lot of uh, a lot of strife, a lot of confusion, and a lot of fear. And so they're hoping, expecting this military leader to come and wipe out the Romans, right? Like a Hercules figure or something. Yeah, that like like I said, it's. They were expecting a godly person, not a god person. Right. Yeah, and uh, the way God answers this is just uh, no one could see coming. Like it's no, yeah, he's <laughs> he's telling them my kingdom is not of this world, and that's because it ends at my kingdom is spiritual, and spiritual is the real. Like we talked about in the the end times, the eschatology episode. The physical is not the real. And that doesn't mean physical. What we see is not real. It means the physical points to the heavenly reality. And the heaven is real. And that's what Jesus is pointing to. The law is supposed to point you towards the true one who's to come. Heaven. That new heavenly citizenship that is now yours. That is the true citizenship. Not this world citizenship. And that's why he says he'll rebuild his temple in three days and yep. I'm like he was crazy. 
Yep, yeah, because he is that temple, and he says it explicitly, but it's it's not perceivable, it's not understandable to them. Cool. All right, well, this is going to be a pretty obvious and easy one for you, but how do we theme into the gospel? Yeah, this is, um, we need a fully God man in order to save us from our sins, and I was looking through a couple different creeds and uh, a couple different articles of of confessions. Um, so let me let me read one of these real quick. It says this is um, from the Belgian Confession. So uh, in my denomination, we have three confessions. We have the Heidelberg, we have the Canons of Dort, and we have the Belgian Confession, and they're all just really quick, easy. Um, synopses of the faith and it gives you a, a really firm grasp of what we believe uh, so let me read this and this will be my answer and so it says we believe that by this conception so the birth the person of the son of god is inseparably united and joined with the human nature so that they're not two sons of god nor two persons but two natures united in one single person <clears throat> each nature retains its own distinct properties his divine nature has always remained uncreated without beginning of days or end of life, Hebrews 7, 3, filling heaven and earth. His human nature has not lost its properties. It has beginning of days and remains created. It is finite and retains all the properties of a true body. Even though by his resurrection he has given immortality to his human nature, he has not changed its reality since our salvation and resurrection also depend on the reality of his body. However, these two natures are so closely united in one person that they were not even separated by his death. Therefore, what he, when dying, committed into the hands of his father was a real human spirit that departed from his body. Meanwhile, his divinity always remained united with his human nature, even when he was lying in the grave. And the divine nature always remained in him just as it was in him when he was a little child, even though it did not manifest itself as such for a little while. For this reason, we profess him to be true God and true man, true God in order to conquer death by his power, and true man that he might die for us according to the infirmity of his flesh. So he had to be God in order that he had the ability to obey, and he had to be man to identify with us. Wow. You definitely dis didn't disappoint on that answer. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is just historic reform doctrine. It, I don't have to come up with my own answers. I can just refer to what's been said before. Yep, exactly. We're not uh, reinventing the wheel. We're just showing no. the wheel. We're pointing you back to the wheel. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, that, that wraps it up. Um, we are on Instagram. We are... Uh, on Spotify, please, and all these other podcasts. Uh, yeah, Apple, Google, whatever podcast app you guys use, we're on it. Yep. Subscribe, like us, give us good comments, uh, email us with questions, uh, follow us on Instagram, and uh, we will catch you next time. Yep. See you guys later.